I'm David Liu, and this is PMR Mythbusters. There are lots of things often taught in Polymyalgia Romatica that are not actually completely true. So, today, let's bust this myth. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Sarah Mackey from Leeds in the United Kingdom. Hello, Sarah. Hello, David. So, today's myth that we will be addressing is Polymyalgia Romatica is only proximal. So, bilateral hips and buttocks, and upper arms, shoulders. So, Sarah, let's say that I have a patient that comes in, classical presentation, both shoulders, both hips, prolonged early morning stiffness, elevated inflammatory markers, but also has bilateral knee pain. Does that make them not polymyalgia rheumatica? What do you think? No, it does not. That is a myth. Myth. It, it is a myth. Distal musculoskeletal manifestations are very common in polymyodramatica and knee pain is one of the commonest. So it is a myth. If it looks otherwise, just like PMR, that can still be PMR. So is it just the knee or does it extend to other peripheral sites as well? For example, the hands. What do we think about that? So um, absolutely, yes, it can. Um, so the commonest joints to be involved in terms of pain and swelling are knees and wrists. Uh, but MCP joints are actually fairly commonly involved as well, and occasionally the ankles. And also we sometimes see tenus synovitis peripherally, so that can cause carpal tunnel manifestations. And of course, our favorite thing, RS3PE as well, which is very peripheral too. So um, absolutely. The hands can also be quite symptomatic in PMR. And actually, if you ask a patient with PMR to shade where their pain is on a mannequin, some of them will actually, you know, restrict their shading to shoulders and hips very conveniently. And they might even show the ischial tuberosities and, and all of that if they're very, very accurate. But then some people are just going to colour in the whole of the mannequin and say, my whole body hurts, doctor. And, and it, for those, for some patients... They do have all over pain and all over stiffness, and there might be a bit of swelling in their knees as well. So how can we then, let me challenge you on this, if there is that difficulty knowing over, all over pain versus the pain directly from the polymyodramatica itself, how do we know that these are real sites of inflammation? Do, do the imaging studies tell us anything, for example? Absolutely. So... Um, Clearly, in our clinical diagnostic process, we do take a history and the patient may say they have pain all over. And that may be absolutely what they experience. And of course, we're going to examine them and we will quite frequently find restriction of movement, particularly at the proximal joints around the hip, shoulder and hip girdles. And that's fine. And we also might find corroborative labs. They may have systemic features and so on and so forth. But then sometimes the picture is not 100% clear cut. And that's when we want to move to imaging. And there have been some great imaging studies. So you can do ultrasound, you can do MRI scans, particularly of the pelvis. Um, you can do PET CT, you can do PET MRI. Um, and all of these um, Im imaging studies, um, they show that PMR actually is a very distinct disease. It has its own signature. Um, that signature looks slightly different depending on the imaging modality in terms of exactly the appearance of the structure, but it's the pattern of structures which is the same no matter what imaging modality you use. Um, PET scans, quite frequently, we do half body PET scans. So we cut the PET scan off above the knee. But actually, if you do whole body PET CT, you will quite frequently see involvement um, of the knee joints. 
Um, and that's probably because of the popliteal tendon in the back of the knee and the tendonitis, peritendonitis characteristic of, of PMR, which is part of its signature. So um, absolutely, patients do have knee pain and swelling quite frequently. They've got every reason to experience that knee pain and swelling. And it's part of the PMR and it should respond to the steroids in exactly the same way. So let me challenge you a little bit further on this. Some people would say, well, if you've got both shoulders involved, both hips involved, both knees involved, this has to be a oligoarticular or polyarticular large joint inflammatory arthritis, a rheumatoid arthritis, let's say. What would you say to that? Well, there's two things to that. There's one thing is you can draw your disease boundaries where you like. Um, but then the second thing is, if you look at that PET-CT scan, those two conditions look very different. So the RA is very synovial centered. It sits in that synovium. The inflammation is focused onto the joint cavity. Um, whereas in PMR, there is fluid inside the joint, but that's secondary. And primarily it's inflammation that's extra capsular. It's around the outside of the joint. Um, so it's a very, very different pattern. Um, and it can be look quite similar clinically, but if you're not sure, you can get some sort of imaging and that will often help you decide. Um, I don't tend to use imaging very much with PMR diagnosis because actually when you've seen quite a lot of PMR, it, you know, the clinical evaluation is usually sufficient, um, but sometimes it's a bit less clear and then I will go on and get imaging. And so do we often see this these peripheral um, this peripheral involvement persist along uh, in amongst in terms of the disease activity that we do get, or does it tend to um, does it tend to operate independently, or does it operate uh, as part of a broader system? So it's um, it's most common at presentation it tends to respond to steroids, um, but then if the PMR relapses, then sometimes these distal musculoskeletal manifestations can relapse along the way um possibly partly dependent on you know how quickly that relapse is caught the longer you leave it the more it's going to spread so um sometimes you do but you predominantly see these um distal manifestations at, at, at the onset um and in the really good pmr studies they followed uh, the pmr patients up for five years just to make sure it doesn't evolve into rheumatoid arthritis um and we can be very confident if they've done that that what they're describing genuinely is pmr if you do get a peripheral joint that gets more and more synovitic as time goes on and everything else is is fine and then these peripheral small joints start to get involved then you might be, get a little worried that in fact it was pmr um initial sort of um uh, PMR um, being uh, mimicked by rheumatoid arthritis. But that's actually fairly unusual in this day and age. We're quite good at picking out rheumatoid arthritis early because we've got lots of skills in that in rheumatology. Um, and it's usually, if it looks just like PMR with a little bit of peripheral joint swelling, then it usually is going to turn out to behave just like PMR if you follow them up for five years. So my patient with the shoulder and hip stiffness, prolonged early morning stiffness in the morning, but knee pain does actually have PMR, doesn't have uh, a funny looking rheumatoid arthritis. If it looks otherwise like PMR, then I think it's very, very valid to um, proceed as you suggest and follow them up and just make sure it does behave like PMR ex is expected to behave. So there you go. PMR isn't only proximal, so it can be more than just the hips and the shoulders. Uh, good learning point. I think that's one thing that we often hear taught that's not absolutely completely true. So today we've busted that myth. 
Thanks and join me for another PMI Mythbusters coming up soon. Thank you very much. I'm David Liu and this is PMR Mythbusters for Room Now's month on PMR. There, make room for PMR. There are lots of things often taught about PMR that are not actually completely true. So let's bust this myth today. T so today I'm joined by Dr. Rob Sparrow from the Hospital of Special Surgery. Needs no introduction. Welcome to Mythbusters. Thank you for having me. Great program. <laughs> so today's myth that we'll be addressing is PMR needs an elevated said rate or CRP. So Dr. Sparrow, let's say I have a patient come in, absolutely classical symptoms, shoulder, hip involvement, prolonged early morning stiffness, but has a said rate of 20, a CRP of five. Does that patient have polymyalgia rheumatica? What do you think? So I think the sedimentation rate and CRP are incredibly helpful, but they are a piece of the puzzle. They are a piece of the history that you're listening or really more a sign that you're, you're measuring. But the clinical history in PMR more than anything helps lead you to the diagnosis. Um, I would say you definitely think twice about the diagnosis and the vast majority of patients will have an elevated said rate or CRP, but that doesn't mean everyone. And this is, you know, we could talk about studies that were done looking at this. And there were a bunch of studies that go back probably 20 years or more describing that maybe as many as 20% of patients in some, some studies can have a normal SED rate. It's far fewer actually that have a normal SED rate and a normal CRP. So the SED rate is much more twitchy and other things can affect it. Um, but if a patient has a classic story, and in my opinion, a dramatic response to low doses of corticosteroids, which I know is another myth, myth that you may be trying to bust, that's part of your clinical story too. And we definitely see patients with PMR and it can be fairly classic PMR, certainly with the normal sedimentation rate, maybe a little less frequently with both the normal sed rate and CRP. So how common is this as a phenomenon? I mean, it seems like obviously having an elevated ESR and CRP really does help us a lot when it's there. What? How often are we talking about that it's not? So again, it you know it depends whether you're talking about in practice or when it's been studied. But if you look at studies of this, really anywhere between like five and twenty percent of patients can have a normal sed sedimentation rate. Also, we all have to remember of normal sedimentation rate might mean normal for that patient. All of us have been in an experience where we see somebody with pretty classic PMR, their sed rate is 29, and then their internist sends forward some older labs and their sed rates had been running two or three for years before that. So that's a sedimentation rate less than 30. That's technically a normal sedimentation rate, but for that patient, it's an elevated sedimentation rate. But we also see patients whose sed rates really are normal, including normal for them. And other things can contribute to that. But it's, again, it's uncommon, but it's not rare. So think of it this way. Even if 10% of patients had a normal sedimentation rate in CRP, you would not want to miss 10 out of 100 patients who are miserably uncomfortable with a syndrome that at least at the beginning is relatively easily treatable. So those steroids up front have all kinds of problems associated with them long-term, but up front, they give you a lot of information and 
they're dramatically effective in most patients. So to entertain the idea that you would be rigid about not entertaining the diagnosis of PMR in somebody with a normal sedimentation rate and CRP when their story is otherwise classic um, really wouldn't be conscionable for most of us. And this isn't just true for PMR. We know that in rheumatoid arthritis, a substantial norm number of patients have seronegative rheumatoid arthritis. We're more careful in those patients that we're not missing something else, but it certainly happens. So that's, that's myth busted there. Now, let me ask you, what about for um, ongoing monitoring? What about flares? Is it possible to have a flare of PMR with a normal ESR or CRP? Yes. Yeah, so that both is something we have experienced with in practice, and there's also literature about it. But so the short answer is yes, you can flare and ha still have a normal sedimentation rate in C or CRP. I still find it a little bit helpful looking at how your sedimentation rate or CRP in the moment of flare compares to what it was before your flare. Um, so that can be a little bit helpful. On the other hand, we know that as you lower steroids, those markers tend to elevate. So it becomes a little bit less helpful in a discriminatory way. Um, often flares though are addressable with trivial doses of steroids that are even far shy of the doses we use up front. So whereas you may use a dose of 10, 15, or even 20 milligrams of prednisone or its equivalent as initial treatment, a flare, you may adjust the dose of prednisone by five milligrams or by two milligrams. So um, we think about it, but it can occur that a patient can flare still having a normal sedimentation rate um, in general, um, or even a normal sedimentation rate for them. Wonderful. So there we have it. Myth busted. PMR does not need an elevated ESR or CRP. Dr. Spiro, thank you so much for joining us today on PMR Mythbusters. Thanks so much. Pleasure being here. And look out for plenty more on the Room Now website and another episode to come of PMR Mythbusters. Hi, I'm David Liu, and this is PMR Mythbusters for Room Now's month on PMR. Make room for PMR. There are often a lot of things taught about PMR that are not entirely true. So today, let's bust this myth. Today, I'm joined by the doyen of Polymaldramatica, Dr. Eric Madison from the Mayo Clinic. Welcome to Mythbusters. Thank you. Thank you, David. It's a pleasure to be together with you. So today, the myth we'll be addressing is that it is not PMR, if the myth of the sorry is not PMR, if the patient has not returned to their baseline to 100% of usual within 72 hours of steroids, and this is something that gets often taught a lot. It's something that I think gets taught to medical students as in textbooks. But Dr. Madison, say I have a patient that comes in absolutely classical presentation of polymaldramatica. I start them on on glucocorticoids on the Tuesday. I call them on Friday, and they're only partially better. Do they have polymaldramatica? So that's a wonderful question, and that's something that we come across clinically all the time. The experience teaches us that patients who have polymyaldramatica generally have a quite rapid and gratifying response to low-dose glucocorticoids, generally in the range of around 15, sometimes 20 milligrams of prednisone per day. And within two, three days, the patients are ecstatic and are moving around and are joyful. Um, 
that is probably a response that we'll see in about uh, three-fourths of patients. But there are really two things to think about in this context. The first one is that there are a number of inflammatory conditions that cause a polymyalgic type syndrome. So pain in the muscles, pain in the upper and lower extremities, pain in the shoulder and, and hip girdles that are associated with other forms of inflammatory disease. Some of them diseases as we, as we are very familiar with, um, uh, for example, giant cell arteritis, which of course in 20 to 40% of the time has PMRs and accompanying syn uh, syndrome, but also patients who have other kinds of diseases that can be inflammatory or um, uh, very much inflammatory mimicking in nature can respond also in a similar way. And so patients, for example, who have lupus, patients who have um, even um, bouts of severe autoimmune-related hyperthyroidism can present with polymyalgic symptoms and have a good response. There are many, many forms of cancers, especially hematologic cancers that are associated with musculoskeletal pain of an inflammatory nature and are exquisitely responsive to steroids. I can remember several patients actually with lymphomas who had a, a polymyalgic presentation, a good response to steroids, but a couple of weeks later when the initial treating physician had perhaps lost track of the patient or the patient had been referred in the meantime, had recrudescence of disease and we determined through a little bit more history and some simple laboratory evaluation that there are some, that there's something else going on such as uh, lymphoma. I even uh, had um, a patient about uh, four years ago who was involved in polymyalgic studies uh, as a um, patient who entered the classification criteria study that we did, who in fact had gastric cancer with polymyalgic symptomatology. And that was only revealed after several months. So, so much for the myth about every patient that presents with a proximal muscles uh, symptomatology resembling polymyalgia has polymyalgia because they responded to steroids. The other side of it is that patients who have polymyalgia may not completely respond to steroids. And as I sort of alluded to uh, just before, about 20, 25% of patients have an incomplete response. It may be gratifying to see the response of the patient to that amount of steroids in the first several days, but even a short follow-up sometimes will teach us that the patients have incompletely responded even when they have bona fide polymyalgia rheumatica. And we, after thorough investigation of the patient, don't find any other uh, disease that underlies the symptomatology. So really it goes both ways and that exquisite response doesn't always, ident doesn't always define uh, a positive case of polymyalgia rheumatica, but also polymyalgia rheumatica doesn't always respond so clearly um, in such an exquisite way. How good is a steroid response in 
as a predictive factor in the diagnosis of polymyodramatica then? Well, you know, in the past, before the classification criteria were developed by ACR and ULAR, there were a number of classification criteria that actually specified that a response to steroids was emblematic of the disease diagnosis. And that coupled with some polymyalgic symptomatology, such as proximal muscle pain of an inflammatory nature, nailed down the diagnosis according to these older criteria. So I think a lot of the mythology about steroid response actually comes from that. But it is absolutely incorrect to say that a steroid response defines the diagnosis. And so how long should I wait if I do have that polymyodramatica patient that I've started on steroids? How long is acceptable for them to, in terms of the steroid response, in terms of waiting for a steroid response for them? How long, if, if it's not uh, 72 hours, how long should I be waiting? I think a maximum of a week. So typically we actually follow up these patients after about three days, in fact, and then in a week, and then in two weeks, to have certainty about what the clinical response is and to have a, a more firm idea that our diagnosis is correct. And then uh, we can establish the further follow-up depending upon what these initial what these initial evaluations show us. So in answer to your question directly, certainly within a week and at maximum two weeks, we should know. Well, Dr. Madison, I'm glad we could address this idea that an exquisite response defines polymyodramatica. I think it's another myth busted. So thank you so much for joining us today on PMR Mythbusters. Thank you, David.